All right, so we will go ahead and get started. And I will pray with Psalm 131. So we'll begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, my heart is not proud, nor are my eyes haughty. I do not busy myself with great matters, with things too sublime for me. Rather, I have stilled my soul, hushed it like a weaned child, like a weaned child on its mother's lap. So is my soul within me. Israel, hope in the Lord now and forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. It's always a good psalm, right before you deal with matters which are too sublime for you, which it says precisely you're not going to do. So we have two weeks left, so this one and one more. And so today we'll talk about the communion rites and the concluding rites. And I will jump around a little bit. Basically, at this point, everything I am talking about are things people have asked me if I was going to talk about. So I assume it are things which either because of the way the liturgy, the movements in the liturgy right now, they, they just come up a lot. So they are, maybe we would call liturgical hot button issues, I guess. So the first one is on page one, the sign of peace. Always a controversial thing, the sign of peace. So the sign of peace is of course the priest offering people the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there is the optional fraternal offering. And it is optional. I think the rubrics say, if pastorally appropriate. So it's sort of the presider's choice. You have probably noticed, if you're a daily mass attendee, that I encourage the fraternal offering on the weekends and during the week, I usually skip it or pass through it. So I guess I should explain why I do that. In the gospel, there are two notions of peace. There is, for lack of a better term, Mathean peace. And that is the peace which Matthew talks about a lot in his gospel. And that is sort of peace between people. It is fraternal peace. It is communal peace. It is sort of seminarians getting along, family members getting along, not sinning against one another. It's sort of, you could think of it as on a horizontal plane. There is also in the Gospels what I like to call Johannine peace, which is a vertical peace. It is the peace between men and God. And this is the peace which Jesus Christ ultimately gave us because sin sort of threw chaos into our relationship with God. We no longer had peace with God. And this was a big emphasis of Paul in his epistles. He talks about how the blood of Christ, the offering of Christ now established peace, harmony between us and God. And so you see in A and under one, you see Mathean peace, right? So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go, first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. That is peace between people. Under Johannine peace, you see that peace of Jesus Christ, where he says, peace I leave you, and this is at the Last Supper, my peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He's telling them they're going to have peace because he's about to die for them, to reconcile them with God. And then again, at the Last Supper, he says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That is the peace between God and man. And so the Mass, when it is offering the sign of peace, it is primarily referencing Johannine peace, the peace between God and man. And the reason we know this is because, A, through the Eucharistic prayer, we have just made present the Last Supper. We have sort of walked ourselves through the Last Supper, which Jesus is promising the peace between man and God at. You also have the fact that the peace is flowing from Christ. Christ is present at this point in the Mass on the altar. And in the classical rite, and the Greeks still do this, this was emphasized by the way they would do this rite, the priest would first kiss the altar as if he's receiving peace from Christ, and then he would turn to his deacon and offer the deacon peace, and then the deacon would go to the subdeacon, and they would go to the servers. And what that symbolized is 
the peace flows from Christ to the priest and then to the people, but it's Christ's peace. It's not fraternal peace primarily. There's an element of that there because whenever Christ makes peace between us and God, that peace should flow out to one another, but it stems from Christ. That is primary. You also have the fact that through the Eucharistic prayer, we've made present the last, the death of Christ on the cross. And that death, that act of Christ reconciled us with God. Now it's been made present on the altar, and now that peace which Christ gained for us between God and man, we are partaking in. So, primarily, at this point of the Mass, we are referencing our peace with God. That should be sort of the emphasis. Now, over time, this rite kind of got crazy in the 80s and the 90s. You may remember, like, priests walking all through the church. The church has constantly told priests not to do that. Because, again, the primary emphasis is not fraternal peace at this point. It's between God and man. So Benedict, in, when he was the pope, because he's very German and Benedict you know, likes things methodical, the, the rite of peace, the way it was being done, drove him crazy. And so he went to his committee, and one of the priests on the committee was a man named Father Dennis McManus, who visited my seminary class when I was back in the seminary. And we asked him various questions about the priesthood and about the liturgy, and he told us this story. That Benedict actually went to them and he wanted to move it because he was troubled by the fact that you have Jesus Christ on the altar. If the priest then offers anybody a sign of peace, he is leaving God who is now present on the altar and walking away from him. And Benedict's like, that's weird. You also have the fact that the priest has touched the host. So he has particles on his fingers. And so how can he go and shake people's hands? That's why you notice I wipe my fingers neurotically before the sign of peace when I offer it, because you have to do something with those particles. You can't just spread them throughout the church. And so Benedict's impulse was, well, let's move it. And so he went to his committee, and his committee came back to him, and they said, we actually shouldn't move it. We should keep it where it is, but it should be done soberly. The priest should offer the people peace, and then if he invokes the option, the people can offer one another peace. And the reasoning that they gave to Benedict goes all the way back to St. Augustine, Augustine mentioned the fact that Romans, when they would seal a covenant, they would offer one another the sign of peace. That was sort of the final way. It's like having a toast, right, to the covenant or to the agreement. And so they went to Benedict and they said, this is why the sign of peace is where it is. Because through the Eucharistic prayer, we've just sort of recalled the covenant with God made through Jesus Christ. And so we're sort of affirming and sealing that covenant through the sign of peace. So Benedict said, okay, we'll leave it. And then he put in the various rules. The priest should not leave the sanctuary, should be done soberly, etc. So the reason why I usually just go through it without the fraternal offering during daily mass is again to emphasize the point that the peace is peace between you and God that's been made present by Jesus Christ on the altar. Then I'm not walking away from Jesus on the altar. It always feels weird. On weekends, I've left it just because, like I said, it's an option. So you can do it, you don't have to, the option. So there's the sign of peace. After the sign of peace comes the commingling rites where the priest will take it and he breaks the host and he takes a piece of the host and he drops it into the chalice. And he says, by this mingling of the body and blood of Christ, may we come to enjoy eternal life. Traditionally, when you would break the host, you would hold it over the chalice because it's symbolizing something. It is symbolizing the blood which flowed from the side of Christ. So you have the body of Christ. It's being broken. When was Christ's body broken? The closest thing that happened when it was broken was when the, the lance pierced his side because his bones were not broken like the Paschal lamb. So that, you'd break the host over the chalice, and then you'd drop a piece in, and you'd make three signs of the cross over it, which is a Trinitarian reference. So that rite is referencing the blood flowing from the sign of Christ. You also, when you unify the body and blood, it became symbolic of the resurrection, the reunification of the body and soul of Christ. The body of Christ now is a risen body. So you had that there as well. So it's referencing both Calvary, the death of Christ on the cross, the piercing of his heart by the spear, and then also the resurrection as well. 
While this is happening, everybody else is singing the Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God entered the liturgy, the Mass, around the seventh century. And it's one of the most richly symbolic notions throughout the Mass. And I mentioned this in one at the bottom of page one. So when we reference Christ as the Lamb of God, we are recalling the Paschal Lamb in the Old Testament, in Exodus 12, 1 through 14. God commanded Israel when they were being, right before they were going to be led out of Egypt, out of slavery, to have a Paschal Lamb. And all of these references to the Paschal Lamb, like its bones were not broken. That's why John the Evangelist makes it such a big deal that Christ's bones were not broken on the cross, because Christ is the Paschal Lamb. In days of old, through the Passover, God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. Now, through the blood of Christ, the new Paschal Lamb, he delivers us from slavery to sin and death. So you have the Paschal Lamb. You also have, in Isaiah 53, 7, this image of the Messiah, who is going to be the suffering servant. He's going to bear our sins. By his wounds, we will be healed. That's referencing, again, Christ. By his wounds, we are healed. That's why I often tell people to meditate upon the wounds of Christ, especially when they struggle with certain sins. The wounds of Christ ultimately will heal you of your vices. He's the suffering servant. And then, of course, John the Baptist, when he saw Christ, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. So when you are singing the Lamb of God, what you are essentially doing is putting this like golden crown upon all of salvation history. You're recalling the Exodus. You're recalling the Passover. You're recalling deliverance from Egypt. You're recalling the suffering servant. You're recalling John the Baptist pointing out Christ. And you're saying all of this points to Christ who gave us the ultimate victory and is sort of the ultimate meaning of all the Old Testament signs and symbols. Again, going into page two, you see Peter in his letters talks about the redemptive power of the blood of Christ. Again, you're recalling that. And then, of course, it all leads to Revelation 5, 6, which depicts this lamb who is on the throne in the kingdom of heaven. And he is surrounded by people wearing white. That should remind you of like altar servers. He's surrounded by angels and saints. He's surrounded by those who have been washed in the blood of the lamb. That's a baptismal reference. And they are all worshiping the lamb and from the lamb flows life and goodness and all of these things. So it also is once again reminding us that when you go to mass, you are being joined into the worship of God in heaven. Every mass is a joining of heaven and earth. What This sanctuary becomes a joining of heaven and earth. And every time you go to mass, you are beginning to partake in heavenly worship. That's why we should go to Mass often, and we should get better at praying the Mass. I remember Father Justin Kazuski used to always tell us as seminarians, he said, guys, if you're not very good at praying the Mass, then God's probably not going to let you do that for all eternity. So that's why we have to practice. We have to learn how to worship God again and again and again. And it is hard, and we get distracted, and we wonder about all these things, and we get bored, and we get tired. But we learn throughout life by attending Mass how to worship God properly. So when we die, we have prepared ourselves for heavenly worship. Because if we're not prepared, then it will be purgatory for us if we are lucky, right? And if we've totally rejected the worship of God, then it would be strange for him to impose it upon us for all eternity. So go to Mass and try and pray the Mass as well as you can. And some days you won't pray it very well and try and get better at it. It's a preparation for heaven. After the Lamb of God, the priest says, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those called to the supper of the Lamb. And then we all say, Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word, and my soul shall be healed. This is a reference to the centurion of Matthew 8, 8. When Jesus was going to heal his servant, and the centurion comes to him and says, Just say the word and my servant will be healed. We are essentially asking one more time in humility for the forgiveness of our sins. This is a very Roman way of praying where you're kind of neurotic about asking for forgiveness. Everything we're doing is preparing ourselves for the sacred communion. All right. And then we go into the communion rites. And here are various things which I have also been asked about. 
So first is communion under both species. And by species, I mean the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. So communion under two species is the body and blood of Christ. Communion under one species is just the body of Christ. So communion under both species, receiving the body and blood of Christ, was very common both in the East and the West until the 12th or the 13th century. Right in there, in the West, it started to go out of favor. In the East, it never did. The East had various, they would do intinction where they would take a consecrated host and they would dip it in the blood of Christ. So they had various ways of communion under both species. But in the West, it began to go out of favor and I'll tell you why in a bit. It was officially suppressed in the West, that means it was gotten rid of, in the Council of Constance in 1415. The reasoning for this is manifold. One is the Latin rite has always emphasized that when you receive the body of Christ, you are receiving all of Christ. You don't have to receive the body. If you don't receive the blood of Christ, it's not like you're being shortchanged because uh, the body of Christ is a risen body, which means it contains blood, because if you're a living and risen body, you have blood. But also, the body of Christ is united to his divinity. And so you are receiving his divinity, and you are receiving all of Christ. And so the West always emphasized that, that communion in one species is fine, you're not being shortchanged. And I'm quoted here the germ under um, A, under 1A, under the Council of Constance, this Little statement from the germ. The Catholic faith teaches that Christ, whole and entire, and the true sacrament is received even under only one species. And consequently, that as far as the effects are concerned, those who receive under only one species are not deprived of any of the grace that is necessary for salvation. So if you only receive the body of Christ, it's not like you're being shortchanged somehow. It's not like you're not receiving grace or you're deficient in grace versus receiving under both species. You receive God, the source of all grace, and an infinite being. So there's nothing more that is needed. The, in the United States, of course, in the last 60 or so years, communion under both species became very common. Again, it was permitted after the Second Vatican Council, but the United States, it should be mentioned, is abnormal in this regard. And I noticed this when I was in Guatemala and when I was in the Dominican Republic, and I would ask guys in the seminary who are from all over the world, the vast majority of the world still only gives communion under one species, even before COVID, right? And the reasoning for that is mentioned here at the bottom of page two and the top of page three. So I have this long quote from John Paul II when he says, the chalice should not be ministered to lay members of Christ faithful where there is such a large number of communicants that it is difficult to gauge the amount of wine for the Eucharist and there is a danger that more than a reasonable quantity of the blood of Christ remain to be consumed at the end of the celebration. So what John Paul II is thinking of is what I have seen happen at the cathedral too many times and it's always kind of tragic you have a large number of people, you have no idea how many people, it's let's say an ordination where you're gonna have a lot of guests who may or may not be Catholic, you're gonna have the extended family members of guys being ordained, you're going to have a number of priests and deacons and all of this stuff, these people, and so you don't really know how much wine to pour. And I remember, I think it was my third year of seminary at the cathedral, I was serving mass like the seminarians do, and I was bringing the chalices back to Father Levi and Father Daniel Williams, who were seminarians at the time, because they were consuming the precious blood. And I walked back and I had two full chalices and Daniel and Levi turned to me and they said, you have to consume those. And I said, why? And they pointed, they already had four full chalices themselves. There's no way that you can reverently consume Christ at that point. That's what John Paul II is worried about. And that's an extreme example, but it happens all the time. I mean, how much wine do you pour even for 300 people? And so John Paul II is worried about those situations where you're forced to consume eight or 10 ounces of the precious blood, and there's just no way to do that reverently. So that's his first reason. 
He says the same is true that the chalice should not be administered, should not be ministered, wherever access to the chalice would be difficult to arrange, or with such a large amount of wine would be required that its certain provenance and quality could only be known with difficulty. So that's the second reason. If it's just the logistics of receiving the blood of Christ doesn't work. When we went to the beatification mass of Solanus Casey, the mass took place at Ford Field where the Lions play. There was no way to distribute the blood of Christ reverently there. It was hard enough that they distributed communion reverently. In hindsight, I don't think they should have. They should have just had the priests and deacons receive. But they tried, and it was kind of just chaos. So that would be another example. The third reason he gives is wherever there is not an adequate number of sacred ministers or extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion with proper formation, or where a notable part of the people continues to prefer not to approach the chalice for various reasons. So the third reason is if you simply don't have enough extraordinary ministers, if you don't have enough priests, if you don't have enough deacons, then obviously you should not distribute. And then the fourth reason he gives is interesting. He says, you should not do it if people would continue not to approach the chalice for various reasons. So some people like to only receive communion, let's say from a priest, and let's say you only have one priest distributing, and those people then decide they would not receive the precious blood. If that was a significant number of your congregation, John Paul II says you shouldn't then have the chalice because it creates a division. You have some people receiving both species, you have some people not, and it kind of creates friction. Another reason would be if, let's say, the flu is ramping through a community and you have a large people who are not gonna receive because of germs or certain phobias or whatnot. Again, that would be another reason not to distribute because it's a sign that wounds unity. It wounds the unity of the community. So those are the four reasons. Unable to gauge how much wine you need. Access to the chalice would be sort of preposterous or difficult. You don't have enough ministers. Number four is where you'd have a lot of people not receive the wine anyways. So those are the four reasons by John Paul II. And then on the top of page three, you have the USCCB. And they give a fifth reason, which always has to be factored in when you're deciding about having communion of both species. And they say, number three there, in practice, the need to avoid obscuring the role of the priest and the deacon as the ordinary ministers of Holy Communion by an excessive use of extraordinary minister might in some circumstances constitute a reason either for limiting the distribution of Holy Communion of both species or for using intinction. What they're getting at here is in the Novus Ordo, in the New Mass, Priests and deacons are the ordinary ministers of Holy Communion. So we are sort of the standard ordinary. You have extraordinary, usually we just call them extraordinary, right? But they are extraordinary, that is beyond the ordinary. And the USCCB is envisioning this situation where let's say you have one priest distributing, you have no deacons, you have no other priests, and then you have nine or 10 extraordinary ministers distributing because you have nine or 10 various chalices or whatnot for the precious blood. The USCCB is saying that looks strange because the priest is the ordinary minister, but then you have all these other extraordinary ministers and it reduces sort of the emphasis on the priest and the deacon as the ordinary minister. So the USCCB throws that reason out as well. So you can see those reasons from John Paul II, you can see those reasons from the USCCB, why many countries have kept sort of the practice of not having communion under two species. What you would see in a lot of those countries in the West is what they would do is they would have communion under both species for major events. So your wedding, uh, first communion, ordinations, possibly Christmas, Easter, Holy Thursday, Corpus Christi, the major feasts, they will kind of gear up and have communion under both species and then go back to one species. So that's the history of communion under both species. And with that, we will take a five minute break before we talk about the manner of receiving. All right, so we will continue, and we are on page three, B, which is the manner of receiving. This is another thing various people have asked me about. So in the classical rites in 62, 
People were mandated to receive kneeling and on the tongue. And in the Novus Ordo, the Mass of Paul VI, there are, I always say, four options. And people are always like, how do you get four options? And I always break down, right? You can receive standing on the hand, or standing on the tongue, kneeling on the hand, or kneeling on the tongue. So I kind of, just for the sake of ease, I divided it into two. And I will just go through all of these options. So option number one is communion on the tongue and kneeling, or just communion on the tongue in general. I have this big long quote here from the instruction on the manner of distributing Holy Communion. That was a pretty important document in 1969, and it was concerned with, were they going to make a change to allow more options? And so, how did we get to 1962 Communion on the Tongue and Kneeling? You will already see in the sixth century that people began to receive communion on the tongue. And the reason was very, very simple. They were worried about particles. One drop of water is water. One particle of the host of Jesus is Jesus. And so over reflection and over time, they started to think about this and they said, well, wait a minute. If we are receiving the body of Christ, we have to be worried about particles. You will notice at Mass, every time after I touch the host, I hold my two fingers together, the canonical digits they used to be called. That's because I have touched the host and now I have particles of Jesus. So I hold them together until I can wipe them on the corporal and wipe off the particles of Jesus so that they don't go flying through the sanctuary. So sixth century, you're starting to see this. You're starting to see communion on the tongue. You're starting to see communion kneeling. And by see it, I mean it's starting to become prevalent, right? It's no longer sort of an ancillary thing. By the ninth century, communion on the tongue was common. It was pretty much mandated, if not outright mandated. And by the 11th century, people were receiving it kneeling. The reason for kneeling was very simple. You had these quotes from St. Augustine, the one I mentioned there, which says, no one eats of that flesh without first worshiping it. There was an understanding of the church fathers that you should worship God before receiving communion. And they thought, what's the easiest way to do that? Kneel. And so they would kneel. So they were worried about particles, so they received on the tongue. And then they were worried about worshiping God, they received kneeling. And that's just how it came about. The other option, of course, is communion on the hand. And so that came out in 1969, the document I referenced. They were discussing it because, and this is true, in the early church, in the first couple centuries, Christians were allowed to receive communion on the hand. And so the bishops gathered together and they said, well, should we leave that as an option? We know it existed in our tradition. Should we allow it? And the bishops voted, and I think actually two-thirds voted against it, but a third voted for it, and some of the powers that be allowed it in the Netherlands, in Belgium, in France, and in Germany, and then it came to the United States. So it is allowed, but the way it was done, or the way it was done in the early church, is worth looking at. So at the bottom of page three on B there, there's a quote from... Who did I quote? Cyril of Jerusalem, who was an early Christian church father, fourth century off the top of my head. He says, coming up to receive, therefore do not approach with your wrists extended or your fingers splayed, but making your left hand a throne for the right. So notice, you hold your hands like a throne. For it is about to receive a king. And cupping your palms, so receive the body of Christ and answer, Amen. You see the tradition of the church, right? We still do that to this day. Carefully <clears throat> hallow your eyes by the touch of the sacred body and then partake. And then notice what he says. Taking care to lose no part of it. Such a loss would be like a mutilation of your own body. Why, if you had been given gold dust, would you not take the utmost care to hold it fast? not letting a grain slip through your fingers, lest you be by so much the poorer. How much more carefully then will you guard against losing so much as a crumb of that which is more precious than gold and precious stones? So anyone who tells you that the early church didn't believe in the real presence of Christ, you can just read them that, right? You see, he's already worried about particles. So 
He instructs his people make a throne. You would also see other instructions make your hands like a cross. And then again, they're very, very worried about particles. The sort of what this is, is showing is that the hand then acts as a patent. The patent is the gold, the flat gold plate that I have my host on. The host would come from the priest patent to your hand, which just acts like a patent, which you would then take. There was always an emphasis that you have to receive communion, that you don't grasp for it. And I always bring this up when I preach on pride because it's a big thing and it was a big deal because the early Christians knew sacred scripture very, very well. And they knew the last time we grasped for something was in Eden, and that was a disaster. We grasped for what was divine, and we fell. So now, they would always tell their people, don't do that. You receive what is divine. You allow God to divinize you. So the act was always one of reception. So kneeling or, and on the tongue, standing in the hand, etc. The church allows all four. Um, I have my opinions on what I think is best, um, which you could probably guess, but I will say this. Practical guidelines. If you receive on the hand, you are permitted to. The church allows that. You should check your hands and your fingers for particles. Seminarians who receive on the hand, they do this. You will notice after they receive, as they are walking back to their, their seat, they will look at their hand and they will look at their fingers. And if they see any particles, then they will just take their tongue and wet their thumb and just dab up those particles and that's what you should do because as Cyril of Jerusalem said right you don't want to lose even a particle so if you receive on the on your hand just be aware if you're an extraordinary minister and you touch the host with your fingers which you will then what you should do is after you're done distributing you bring the host back to me and you should hold your fingers together and you will notice at both St. Mary's and Cabrini, there is what is called a lavabo dish. There is a dish there with water and there's a purificator. And all you do is you take your two fingers that touch the host and you dip them in and then you wipe them on the purificator. I make sure that that water gets poured out into the ground. I make sure that purificator gets shaken out into the ground or um, the water goes into the ground that I wash it with. So that's what you want to do to protect particles. You will notice, right? Again, I hold my fingers like this all the time during mass. I wipe them. You will notice that after the distribution of communion, the servers pour water over my fingers. All of that is to take care of particles of Jesus because we have been entrusted with the most sacred thing in the world, the one who is holiness himself. So we have to be careful with that. So those are your practical guidelines. Uh, and see here on page four, I have this long quote on extraordinary ministers. Another thing I've been asked about a lot, it's just a quote from the USCCB that says, when the size of the congregation is sufficient, then a priest can deputize extraordinary ministers. <laughs> extraordinary ministers will notice that when I hand you the saborum with the body of Christ, I make a sign of the cross over you. I am reciting the prayer of deputization of an in some extraordinary minister, so that's why I do that. Um, traditionally, extraordinary minister, the extraordinary minister would have actually been the deacon. The priest was always seen as the ordinary minister because his hands were consecrated. St. Thomas has this great line that only things which are consecrated should touch the body of Christ. So the patent and ciborium have all been consecrated. They get blessed. The corporal gets consecrated. My hands have been consecrated. And then you have been consecrated, which is why you can receive Christ. But the hands of the priests were the only things which touched the body of Christ. After 69, Paul VI allowed extraordinary ministers to help. That's fine. It's allowed. That's all I have about them. <laughs> there, is, there is a movement in the church of people wanting to receive from the priests. When I was in seminary, I was that way. I always wanted to receive from the priest. And I remember what Father Brad used to always tell us in the seminary. He said, never squash devotion. If people respect the priesthood so much that they only want to receive communion from the priest, I'm okay with that. There's so very little people in the world that respect priests anyway, so I'm never gonna do anything which squashes any sort of devotion to the priesthood or devotion to the Eucharist. So. You can receive from extraordinary ministers. They are permitted, but there are some who say, no, I want to receive from the priest because he has consecrated hands, and I totally get that. 
I totally get that. One of the most powerful moments in my life was when the bishop put chrism on my hands. And what you do is you wipe your hands with what is called a mat manaturgium, which is literally Latin for a hand wipe, but it sounds official, right, when you say manaturgium. And so you wipe the chrism off your palm, and then what you do at your first mass is at the end of the mass, you call your mother forward and you give her the manaturgium, and then she is buried with it. So, and the old story is then when she goes before the throne of God, and God asks your mother what he did for her, he will, she will hand him the manaturgium and said, I gave you my son. So consecrated hands are a big deal. I remind myself of that a lot. Um, so I get that. I get that devotion. So after the distribution of communion, there is the purification. Again, pouring of water. I showed one of our servers the other day how to fold the corporal, which is the white cloth you lay on the altar. The corporal is folded in such a way that if there is particles on it, and you assume there is because I've wiped my hands on it, that the particles then get folded into the center of the corporal. And so you never want to lay the corporal out upside down. You never want to shake it out. If it gets on the altar backwards, you want to refold it and turn it because again, there are particles of Christ on those things. After the folding of the corporal, the priest goes and sits down and we have the concluding rites. And that's the prayer after communion, which you will notice is largely a prayer of thanksgiving. And I have that quote from Augustine at the bottom of page four. After they have done this and have partaken of the sacrament, the giving of thanks brings all to an end. And then the priest gives the final blessing, sending them forth, go in peace, go forth, the mass is ended. So that completes the Mass. Next week I will talk about a couple ancillary things, which I think are, they're just, again, more hot-button issues that people have asked me to talk about. Um, orientation of worship, those type of things. And then I'll also take more questions next week. But I will, for 18 minutes, take questions now. Is the wine permitted was the question. The archdiocese, I believe it was 10 days ago, um, said parishes could bring back communion under both species at the pastor's discretion. So what I decided is because I'm not technically a pastor, I'm a temporary administrator, that I would just leave it be for now and not bring it back and then leave it up to Father Strand. I do have serious concerns. I, I think John Paul II brings up some very good points and I've seen excessive pouring of wine and all of those things. And I do think there's, there's good reasons for not having it. I see why in Guatemala they didn't, but that will be a Father Strand decision. As a temporary administrator, it wouldn't be fair for him for me to make that decision. So some things I kick down the road. I can't solve all of his problems and he's gonna have nothing to do. <laughs> I have to keep him, I have to give him job security. So the question is, what should be the posture of the congregation when I go and sit down? There's, nothing's really spelled out. In the seminary, all the seminarians would kneel just until the final prayer. You can sit down. The custom used to be that you would sit, you would remain kneeling until the priest sat, and then you would sit. So you can remain kneeling. I'm trying to think, when I go to Mass, when I'm not sitting in choir or celebrating the Mass or celebrating the Mass, which I think is only twice in the last year, I usually remain kneeling just because I'm giving my acts of thanksgiving. The Anima Christi, I always recite. So you'll notice when I'm done, I will bow at the altar, a profound bow and mutter words. I'm saying the Anima Christi and the Glory Be. So that's, there are various prayers, and those can actually be found in the back on that little thing on the um, table. So you can sit or kneel is to answer your question. There's options. Options in the liturgy can be good and they can be problematic too. All right, I saw other hands. So the question is, what are we gonna do with the communion rail? I was under the understanding when Father Nathan and I talked about it that part of his agreement with the powers that be, the committees, was he was planning on using the communion rail. So, if it were my decision, I would say remove the kneelers and I would use the rail. 
the rail is super, super efficient. From a purely capitalistic Western American standpoint, it is the most efficient. I, by myself, I can distribute communion to 300 people on the rail like that. The rail also has kind of a rich theology of it. So the rail would always, or not always, but usually it would be the, the top of the rail would be the same material as the altar. What the rail served has was an extension of the altar. Because we can't all gather around the altar, you would have the rail. It was a sign of unity. Everybody is receiving around sort of the table of the Lord. You also have, and you see this in some of the eight, late 1800 reflections, the priest's hand reaching over the rail is like the hand of God reaching down from heaven and handing you his son. So it's like the incarnation, right? So all of that, I think, makes the rail pretty cool. So not only is it, a, is it practically effective, I think the theology of it is quite good. So my suggestion, to, and it'll be a Father Strand thing again, would be to use the rail. Now, I understand if you're not used to the rail, it's confusing. And so I'm sure he will make me make videos, and maybe I'll go get the little second graders, you know, to help me. And you'll just see the rail. It's not hard once you see it, but at first it's intimidating. But the, the other great thing about the rail, too, is if you think about it, the priest is going along, right? So you receive communion, and then the priest is going on. You, you don't have to get up right away. You can take your time. If you have bad knees like me, I have these old basketball player knees, right? You can take your time getting up. The rail is also going to be wrought iron because Russ will be in charge of making sure it goes in properly so you know it's going to be well built so you can lean on it. You're also not going to have screws poking up through the cushions, which you've told me about here. So there's a lot of good things about the rail. You're not in a rush. You have your four kids next to you. You don't have to worry about corralling them because the priest is just moving on. Take your time. So... Once you get the logistics of it, I think it's better, personally. Yes, I referenced that briefly last week. Back in the day, the churches of Rome would have a piece of a host that was consecrated by the Bishop of Rome. And that piece would be brought to the various churches, and so it was a sign of being in union with Rome. So... I don't have any, any hosts from Pope Francis, so you couldn't get it across the Atlantic reverently, I guess, so. But yes, there was that symbolism. Ah, excellent. So the question is, what should we do if a host is dropped? Dominic is very, very good at this, if you've noticed. When, so when a host is dropped, you should take a pure, after mass, you should take a purificator, and you should put it on the spot where the host fell, and you should essentially dab the spot with the purificator, and sort of wipe up the spot, and then put the purificator in the back. Yeah, you should consume it. You also notice at the server guild masses, I've started to have them have patents, which is, it looks like a plate on a stick for an irreverent way of describing it. But that's precisely for that reason. Because I've noticed, and even with myself, hosts get dropped, I mean, in Wisconsin, you have dry weather, you have humidity, things stick on your hand, you distribute to a lot of people. So the, having the patents there just as a distributor it gives me so much more comfort because I know that if it falls, they will catch it. What I, I told the kids that if they make contact with anybody with the patents or they hit my ciborium, they have to do 10 push-ups after mass for each person they hit. Now, what I didn't tell them, and see, now they're going to know, they're going to hold me to it, if they catch a host, right, properly, I'm going to get them a Culver's gift card because they saved Jesus. So don't do it on purpose. <laughs> I know how you guild guys think. So that was the purpose of the patent as well was to catch because yeah, it's not good. And if you ever drop the precious blood, it's bad news, especially in carpet. I mean, you'd have to cut the carpet up and burn it. So another reason not to have carpet in your sanctuary to go back to an earlier question. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. The corporals go in a drawer. Every couple of weeks, I take them and um, essentially soak them and pour the water out. The purificators, there is a group of them who wash them. I've never asked them. I should. What you, the protocol in the seminary, when you would wash a purificator, is you would take it and you would soak it in water, 
and then you would pour the water into the ground, and then you have all the precious blood out, and then you would wash them, you would iron them. I remember ironing like 400 purificators when, when I was in seminary. But that's the best way to essentially clean them. So that's a good question. Yes, the question is about songs during communion. There's not a whole lot of guidance. I mean, there are arguments for doing it in silence, right? For all the reasons you mentioned, it's easier to pray. The tough thing with silence, I'm realizing, is we don't like silence. I've noticed this during the offertory in Lent when it recommends that you have silence. I can, like, feel the antsiness of the people of God. It becomes, like, palatable while I'm incensing the altar. And so I think with silence... I remember what Father Tom DeVries always told me, that silence is God's first language and everything else is a poor translation. So we have to get comfortable with silence. But I think from a priest's perspective, I have to introduce that slowly because we live in a world that is very, very loud. And we live in a world where we have phones and we have devices and we have constant overstimulation. And silence makes us encounter God and we're not comfortable with that. I remember the other saying of Father Tom DeVries, in silence you meet two people, God and yourself, and they're the two people we can't stand, right? So I like silence. I like introducing it. But I also understand, too, that silence would help some people pray. It would probably drive other people crazy. So there's kind of a balance. So a hymn well done, I always like. I mean, Adorote is always a great hymn. In the seminary, we had... We always had communion hymns at the major masses. We, it was always silent in daily mass, like, like it is now. So you try and find a balance, like most things. Uh, the point of the big host. So the presider's host is always larger. And mostly that's because at the elevation, the people can see it and adore. What happened in sort of the 80s and the 90s was you had what I call pizza hosts. You had really big hosts. The purpose of them is they wanted more people to receive from the presider host because it's a sign of unity. The general instruction for the Roman Missal still puts that as option one of like having a big host. The reason they went away from them is if you ever break those, like Jesus is flying everywhere. It's really hard to break that up reverently. And you have jagged edges, which just lead to particles. So. The big host, the symbolism of everybody receiving from the same host, I think was kind of lost because, A, not everyone can, like for me to have, I had a 1030 mass on a Sunday, I'd have a host the size of like three of my heads, right? So the symbolism isn't going to be there anyways, and then the host becomes unwieldy. So now we just use sort of the normal presider's host. People can still see it, and I don't have Jesus flying all over the place. I can break that pretty easily. All right, I'll take, yes, go for it. Excellent question. The question. Yes. So there is. How many times can you receive communion in a day? You can receive communion twice in one day as long as the second time is at a mass. So if you go to mass in the morning, that's once, and you go to mass in the evening, like think on a Saturday, you can receive again. You cannot receive communion more than twice in a day, and if the second time is at a communion service, you couldn't receive. So let's say you go to 8 a.m. Mass on a Saturday, and then you go to some 2 p.m. communion service, that can't be your second time. So you can receive twice as long as the second time is at Mass. When it comes to priests celebrating Mass, for a long portion of our history, priests were only allowed to celebrate one Mass. In the Archdiocese of Milwaukee, on non-solemnities and holy days of obligation, so days other than Sunday or holy days of obligation, I'm allowed to celebrate two masses for a pastoral reason. I can celebrate a second mass. So like a funeral or a wedding would be two masses. A lot of times I have the 8 a.m. and then the 6 p.m. on a Saturday. On solemnities, on Sundays and holy days of obligation, I'm allowed to celebrate mass three times. You're also allowed to celebrate Mass three times on All Souls Day. So, you're never supposed to celebrate four Masses anytime or three Masses on a non-Sunday or Holy Day of Obligation. Priests also have a dispensation from their Eucharistic fast if for their second and third Masses. So, like on Sunday, when I, at St. Mary's, I have the 7.30 and then I have the 9.30. I only have to maintain the Eucharistic fast for the first Mass. The second one, I'm allowed to take nourishment. 
so I don't faint. Yeah, so by the letter of the law, you would be able to receive communion a second time. The question was, like, well, let's say on a Sunday you go to the 8 and the 10.30. You would, by the letter of the law, be allowed to receive communion at the 10.30 Mass. The church has always frowned upon that because Mass is supposed to be such that it's supposed to sort of nourish you for the day. If you're sort of just continually going to Mass, the church would be like, well, why didn't you pray better the first time? You know, it's like when I was a little kid and I would misbehave, my mom would maybe come back to the next Mass, you know? It's like the church is like the same thing. So it's frowned upon because your Sunday Mass is supposed to be your Sunday Mass. And you go and you pray well and then you go back into the world. So that's why it's always been sort of frowned upon, even though by the letter of the law, technically you could receive a second time. Funeral, wedding, yep. Or like on Saturdays, the 8 a.m. and the 6, what time's our set? 4.30 p.m., whenever our Saturday evening Mass is. All right, I'll take one more. So the question is, why can't you just go to a bunch of Masses, and um, have I ever had to celebrate more Masses than I should? The answer to the first question is twofold. One is, like I mentioned, the Mass is supposed to be sort of sufficient for the day. The other reason is they want to make sure that people don't have sort of an abnormal devotion. So you could imagine a priest, imagine like a monk who just celebrates Mass continuously all day. Like that would be weird. And so they're trying to prevent that. We just like keep going to Mass again and again and again. Because again, the church is like, well, why, do, why are you doing that? You know, the Mass is sufficient for what it is and celebrating one Mass. In answer to the second question I have, I've had to celebrate three Masses probably already four or five times on, on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation. I've had to celebrate four Masses twice. It's something I've thought about because it is really, really hard to do as a priest. It is really, really hard to celebrate your fourth Mass reverently. It's exhausting. Celebrating Mass is more exhausting than people realize. And so it's, I've been stuck because I had no, I'm in a weird situation being the only priest here by and large. But it's something that is not a good idea and should be avoided. There are some priests who will refuse to celebrate it. Um, I just try and avoid it, but it, we don't have enough priests and we have a lot of Masses. So sometimes you got to do what you got to do. So... All right, well, I will leave it at that. So next week, I'll just talk about a couple other things that people have wanted me to talk about. The orientation of worship at Mass, um, the different genuflections based upon the host and exposition and adoration, and then a couple other things that people have wanted me to talk about. So I will leave it at that. So I'll give you guys a blessing. Please stand. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you.